for Thursday, July 22nd, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, starting this month, families with children will get access to more financial help from the federal government. It wasn't that someone dreamt this up in the pandemic, but I think the pandemic did sort of shine a spotlight on the depth and level of need that a lot of families um, with children have. Christopher Weimer, co-director of the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University, joins me to discuss the expanded version of the child tax credit and how it ties into the pandemic. That's next. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. The expanded tax credit payments set to go out this month to families with children could cut child poverty in the U.S. by nearly half. That's according to research from the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University. Christopher Weimer is the center's co-director. He's with me now to discuss the origins of the payments and the impact they could have. Christopher, thanks for talking with me. Sure thing. This month, families with children here in the U.S. are going to start getting more federal assistance. Just lay out the basics here. Who are we talking about? How much help can they expect? When might they get it? Those kinds of things. Sure. So the child tax credit set to be expanded. Um, the first payments are in July um, and then will we'll be paid out monthly for the remainder of the year. And they'll go to most families with children, um, pretty much all those families with children, except for some of the most affluent you know, so for married couples, for example, the benefits will start to phase out after about $150,000 in income in earnings. So that means everyone below that will get the full credit and the full benefit, which is $3,000 per child over the age of five and $3,600 per year for children uh, zero to five. So it's a little bit more for the younger children. And that's the annual amount. So that'll be paid out monthly. So that works out to uh, $300 a month um, for the younger children and $250 a month for the older children. And that's a pretty big shift because historically these child tax credit payments would be paid out once a year 
and they would max out at $2,000 per child instead of that $3,000 per child or $3,600 per child for the younger kids. And then really critically, um, a lot of families with low earnings and low incomes never qualified for the full benefit up until now. So you had to have quite a bit of earnings in order to get the full, even $2,000 per child. And those families at the low end, it didn't even max out at $2,000 per child. It maxed out at around $1,400 per child. So yeah, so everyone will will be starting to get it, which is a a pretty major and fundamental shift. Um, And that'll go through the end of the year. Um, That's only half the year, you know, July through December. So people will get the remainder of their 2021 child tax credit when they filed taxes in 2022. What are kind of the logistics of all this? You say people are going to be getting payments. Is this going to come through the mail, through some kind of direct deposit? Do we even know what this is going to look like? Yeah, it'd be a combination of all of the above. I mean, if you uh, had historically filed taxes, you would get it just like you would normally get your refund, whether that was through direct deposit or um, in some cases a check. And likewise, if you got any of the the one-time stimulus payments over the past year or so, then you'll get the payment um, just like you would have gotten that. The challenge that people are facing right now is for people who, you know, historically haven't had to file taxes or, you know, haven't received their stimulus payments during the COVID pandemic. So that's where a lot of outreach effort is going right now to try to make sure that people understand the benefit that they're eligible for and get them signed up. So the government actually has a portal that they've released where people can go and make sure they check their eligibility, sign up if they're not signed up already. Um, It's called childtaxcredit.gov. It has all the information on what people are eligible for, how much, um, how to get it, et cetera. You know, who are those people? They tend to be the most disadvantaged and disconnected, the sort of poorest of the poor. So imagine if you're, you know, living in a a homeless shelter, for example, your earnings are probably too low in most cases to have to file for taxes. Um, And so you you might not be in the system already. And and it's those, um, the poorest of the poor that, that I think these outreach efforts are really focused on right now. It seems striking to me that there is a program like this that individuals can actually um, be too poor to qualify for. How is it structurally built that way? Because that seems like a pretty major gap in a program like this. Its origins are as a partially refundable tax credit, right? So the idea, you know, I think when it was developed was to sort of chip away at people's tax burden. And so you have to have sort of had so much in earnings and contributed so much in taxes to get this as a tax refund. But as you said, that was leaving out a lot of families and some of the families that needed it the most. And so, you know, a lot of people have pushed to to make that more inclusive. And, um, you know, it's not that the lowest income folks are not paying any taxes. People pay payroll taxes. People pay sales taxes. People contribute in lots of different ways. And the point I, I always try to make with this is that, like, you know, if you see the poverty rate in, in year one is, you know, 20% and that drops to 19%, you know, in the second year, what that really is is not just 1% of the people, you know, getting less poor, but there's a, a lot of people who are newly poor in the second year that weren't poor in the first year and vice versa. So even if you look over like two years, that 20% turns into like 30% of Americans and you, you extend that to a longer time period, four or five, 10 years, there's a lot of Americans who will experience a spell of low income and poverty. And what this is designed to do is to sort of provide that economic security for all families with children, you know, such that, you know, the costs of of raising a child don't go away when you are out of a job, right? And so making sure that all families get it regardless of earnings or income seems to be like a shared goal that we should all be able to support. I think a big question uh, here, we've kind of answered the who, what, where, when, and how. I want to get into the why. 
talk to me about kind of the origins of this expanded benefit for people with children. Yeah, I mean, the purpose of the child tax credit um, historically has been to, you know, help people afford the significant costs that go along with raising children today. You know, it's not just feeding children and clothing children, keeping children housed, but paying for books, toys, clothes, uh, school supplies, transportation to and from school, like all, all the child care is a huge one, obviously. You know, all the kinds of costs that go into raising a child. And so, you know, historically, we've had this child tax credit that's come, you know, through the tax system. But historically, a lot of people have been left out of that full benefit. So we found at our center at Columbia that it's a, really about a third of children whose incomes were too low to qualify for that full benefit. And a lot of people experience a spell of poverty uh, year to year. Um, it's not just a consistent group of people. So what this policy is trying to do is make sure that you know, there's essentially a bit of an income floor, a bit of a safety net and security net for families with children, you know, regardless of their circumstances. And I would imagine that this is a need that has been brought to light by the pandemic. I mean, I feel like we've seen over the past year and a half federal aid um, handed out to families in, in ways that we haven't seen in, in quite some time, thinking about, you know, the stimulus checks that went out. So is it fair to say that this expanded tax credit is a direct result of the pandemic? Uh, in some respects, it's a direct result of the pandemic. I mean, th these ideas are not brand new. Um, it wasn't that someone dreamt this up in the pandemic, but I think the pandemic did sort of shine a spotlight on the depth and level of need that a lot of families um, with children have. And, you know, when families were out of work, when kids were home from school, right, and um, parents were finding themselves tasked not just with, like, doing whatever work they could keep or find, but also, you know, acting as school teachers and child care providers, um, I think it, it threw into stark relief, I guess, is a, is a good way to put it. But, you know, poverty scholars have definitely been aware of this problem for, for a while. I think what COVID did is really, like I said, sort of shine a light on the need that was out there. You know, I wanted to bring up the pandemic because we have seen with other kinds of federal aid, lots of jockeying um, in, you know, the halls of power in Congress about what kind of aid should be provided, how much and how long. So what is that kind of shaping up like for this child tax credit? You, you mentioned that it's for through the end of this year and then again in the start of 2022 when they file their taxes. What about after that and kind of what are the maybe positions shaping up on either side of whether or not this program continues? Yeah, it's a really important question. I mean, we've, we've found in our research at Columbia that this policy alone would reduce child poverty nearly by half. Um, we, in one estimate, we found about by about 45%, somewhere between 40 and 45%, this policy alone. That would all go away if this weren't made permanent, right? Like if this weren't continued past 2021. So that's what a lot of people are working on right now. Um, it is being talked about as being included as extended at least to, I think it's 2025, um, in some of the, the infrastructure bills that are being discussed right now. But yeah, if these payments go away, then, you know, child poverty would go right back up, essentially. Um, it'd be important, obviously, for this year for those families um, who are still struggling in the recovery from the pandemic. But um, what you really want is for this to be sort of a, a benefit that families with children, you know, can count on. So I guess the other thing that's important is um, it's fairly straightforward and simple policy to administer. 
you have to get people, you know, enrolled. And, and we talked a little bit about some of the challenges and some of the folks, you know, who, who might be hard to enroll. But once once you're enrolled, then you just get this payment um, every month. And importantly, you know, you wouldn't lose any of it, you know, as you work more because it's it's a benefit that's going to the, the vast swath of American families with children. So, you know, it's only at those very high levels of income, for example, where, you know, the benefit would start to phase out and you'd have to be quite affluent for you to get nothing at all. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with Christopher Weimer. He's co-director of the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University. We're discussing the expanded child tax credit payments going out to families this month. I want to dig into this research that y'all have done there at Columbia about the impact that this tax credit could have. Reducing child poverty in this country by 50 percent, that's just a kind of staggering statistic. What is that actually going to mean? I mean, put that in the context of, you know, what that means for an individual, what that means for a community, what that means for the country. Yeah, the way we tend to think about it here at our center at Columbia is really as an investment in our children's future and the future of the country. So there's a a long literature on, you know, the effects of income on children's later outcomes. And um, we've just undertaken a systematic review of all that evidence and tried to quantify it and um, sort of monetize it, look at all the the systematic like costs and benefits of an investment of income in these early years of kids' lives. And we find that the investment, you know, sort of more than pays for itself. And how does it do that? It improves children's school performance. It improves their long-term, you know, educational attainment, their uh, earnings in young adulthood. It improves health a lot. So it improves um, children's health and even in the very long term, uh, longevity and, and reductions in mortality. There's evidence of causal effects of, of income in early ages on, you know, long term um, reductions in involvement in the criminal justice system, uh, reductions in involvement in the child welfare system. So all of these things add up. And, uh, you know, we find that for every, you know, dollar spent, uh, somewhere between eight and twelve dollars of return in the long term. So it's really an investment in our children and in our country because you know income is such an important input into um, how well kids do in the short and long term. And thinking about that investment, I mean, for this one year of this expanded credit, how much will this cost? Yeah, people have definitely done cost estimates. I think it's a little bit north of a hundred billion dollars per year to make this change. And so, you know, that would be a cost that would need to be paid for year after year. But like I said earlier, that initial investment really results in long-term both savings and then um, improvements and resources down the road. So yeah, it's not costless for sure. I mean, to reduce poverty, you do need to spend money, but you know, that's a pretty good bang for your buck. Talk to me about that year time frame because it seems like you've established that it might be hard to see the program's true effects in, in, in that period of time. So is, is the fact that this only is a one-year program set up a challenge for whether or not it's going to be renewed? Yeah, I mean, part of what we're doing at the center is trying to make sure we can capture and understand there should be short-term impacts as well as these longer-term impacts. Obviously, those longer-term impacts would be accentuated if this was delivered, you know, not just for one year, but for multiple years. But in terms of some of those short-term impacts, I mean, we're going to be looking at, you know, experiences of food insecurity and hardship, you know, people being able to pay their bills on time. We expect there to be maybe some short-term effects on people's, you know, mental health and well-being, whether it be like anxiety levels or whatnot. We're going to be looking at, 
you know, whether people are having to go to food pantries, what people are spending the money on. We expect there will be increases on, you know, spending on uh, not just like rent and food, but things for the child, whether they be, you know, educational materials, books, childcare would probably be a big one, as well as those sort of core necessities. So we're going to look at that very closely so we can understand that, you know, even if it is just for one year, we do expect that that you know, infusion of income and resources for families who need it most will be impactful. It's not that it won't be impactful, you know, but obviously more impactful if it was a sustained investment over time. What is your prediction for the future of this program? I mean, are you are you optimistic that in this year, the benefits will be apparent enough to the people who <laughs> decide whether or not to continue this program um, to actually continue it any further, continue it past a year? Yeah, I am optimistic. I mean, I think there's a a lot of political will around this idea. And as long as, you know, this infrastructure bill or or one of these infrastructure bills, I think it would be kept in there. Like I said, it probably would be extended in the short term to like, you know, 2025 or something like that. But otherwise, you know, if it goes away, it's going to be felt essentially as a tax increase for a lot of families, right? Because they'll have received this benefit for a short period of time. And then all of a sudden it'll go away, which is effectively a tax increase on, you know, a whole swath of um, not just low income, but, you know, moderate income families and, and families with children. So that will um, apply, I think, you know, some probably political pressure to, to keep the program going. Um, but we'll see. You know, a lot of it depends on the political will and the political realities of the day and then how popular, like you said, how popular the program is um, with actual families and how much they notice it. You know, but getting it monthly, like they're set to do, should make it really tangible and really visible for a lot of families and be a, a, a set of resources that people can count on in the day-to-day as they go about raising their children. Put this in a little bit of a larger context for me. I mean, how big of a deal is this? I mean, if this is the kind of idea that I imagine has been on some folks' wish list for some period of time, put this in the context of like other big social programs, because I feel like we've seen a willingness from the Biden administration to really expand the social safety net in the time they've been in office. There's been a lot of people working on this, um, this issue for quite a long time in the Congress. I think, you know, Rosa DeLauro, Congresswoman DeLauro from Connecticut, has been a major player, you know, arguing for this type of reform for years now. Um, in terms of its magnitude and impact, you know, the, the closest analogy that, that we can come up with is to our Social Security for the aged, um, which has really put an income floor under the, the population of, of older adults, um, you know, 65 and above. And elderly poverty has really come down tremendously over the years since that investment was made. This would be doing something similar for children. Um, you know, again, it would have to be more than just one year. But if it was made permanent and families could count on it year after year, it would be akin, I think, to the the, the types of poverty reduction we've achieved through Social Security. I think it's interesting that you compared this to Social Security. The Social Security Act was passed decades ago, but we have continued as a country to fund the program as um, you know troubled as it is. And it seems like as a country, we have decided that older Americans do deserve a certain standard of living. Why haven't we decided that as a nation when it comes to children and families in the same kind of way? I mean, the cynical answer is that children don't vote. (laughs) And so, um, you know, political representatives are more likely, you know, to be responsive to the demands and the policy needs of those who do vote. Um, So that's one reason. And, you know, we just historically have lacked the will 
to provide an income floor under most families. I think the past 25 years, we've seen sort of a, a shift of you know, economic insecurity and economic risk to more and more families at the low end of the income distribution. And um, that's being felt. And so I think there's a, there people are seeing that there's a real need for government to step in and, and do something to help um, provide more economic security across the board. Christopher Weimer is co-director of the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 